0: All right, one of the themes that we see in the book of Proverbs is one of self-control. And not just self-control when it comes to bodily desires like sex or food and so forth, but self-control when it comes to our emotions. Uh, Self-control when it comes to our affections, to, to our spirits, if you will. Ruling our emotions, and in particular, ruling over anger, being slow to anger, not being quick to anger, not having your finger on the trigger ready to explode at a moment's notice, but being slow to anger. There is a folly or foolishness in being ruled by your spirit and its unruly emotions. And there is a deep wisdom in self-control or in ruling over your passions, your emotions, your spirits. Now, of course, I mean, there's, there's certainly truth, the truth that there is such a thing as righteous or good anger, right? When we're angry in a righteous way, that's good. And in fact, I would say we are required to be angry about certain things, but I don't think that's usually where we struggle, right? Paul does say, be angry and do not sin. So there is such a thing as good and righteous anger, but I think that's probably rare. I think usually our anger is sinful. And it begs the question, why do we get so angry? When we are finding ourselves all tied up in knots in our hearts about a situation or regarding a person, why are we angry? And I think it boils down to this, because we want to be God. We want somehow to be able to control people and circumstances and, outcomes, and we can't. We can't control people. We can't control outcomes of circumstances, and it makes us mad. We get frustrated. The story of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came to mind a couple of days ago regarding this. You know the story, right, where Nebuchadnezzar built this very impressive golden statue, this golden image, and Every time certain music was played, people were ordered, you must bow down and worship. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not going to play along. And so Nebuchadnezzar brought them to him and gave them the ultimatum. He said, when you hear the music, bow down or else, right? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were still not going to play along. They refused and said, we will not worship your gods. We will not bow down to your golden image. And Nebuchadnezzar got pretty angry. It says, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace to be turned up seven times, and we know what happens. They were thrown in. God rescued them, and so forth. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't control these men. They wouldn't do what he said, and it made him angry. Now, of course, we think Nebuchadnezzar's a bad guy, and so his angry was bad and negative. And, but we often, I think at least subconsciously, think people really ought to do what we want them to do. And circumstances really ought to line up in our favor all the time. And when they don't, we, like Nebuchadnezzar, get angry. And one of the things we need to realize as Christians is that our sinful anger is really a veiled accusation against God. We don't like the way that he is ordering our lives. And ultimately, at the end of the day, when we lay our heads down on our pillows at night, it is God who orders our lives. And the things that we don't like that we get angry about, when we get angry about it, we're accusing God of not doing things the way we want him to. Of course, there are two ways to express anger. One is the explosive outburst of anger which explodes like a volcano, right? And the ash clouds hover over the home and the lava rains down on everyone around the kitchen table or in the family room. Everyone knows that, right? It's like, oh boy, dad's mad or mom's upset or whoever, That's explosive anger, it's totally obvious, and then there's also the anger which is expressed more subtly through the silent treatment, the cold shoulder, or other forms of passive-aggressive techniques, right? Now, this is perhaps, I would suggest, maybe more dangerous because it lies stealthily underneath a veneer of self-control, person looks like they're under control outwardly, but inside they're boiling over and they're expressing it in passive aggressive ways. And quite frankly, if I'm going to be honest, which I want to be, this is where I need the help of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> is in that kind of anger expressed toward the people in my life? I would be surprised if anyone here or anyone in my home, my wife is not here today, but anyone in my home would ever accuse me of flying off the handle and yelling and screaming in anger. I just, I don't do that. I don't know that I ever have in my life. Well, okay, when I was a three-year-old, I probably did, okay? But I don't, don't, that's just not my mode of operation. However, my wife and my children, and probably some of you, have experienced my anger veiled, under a veneer of self-control and passive-aggressive ways. It may manifest itself in less obvious ways, but it's still destructive, and so we all need the Spirit's help. Do you agree with me? Thankfully, He's here to help. And self-control is a fruit of the Spirit's presence in our lives. To have self-control, to be able to rule over your spirit be slow to anger, is an evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives. It is one of the things that He brings into our lives. It's one of the things He produces when He comes and takes residence in us. Part of the renewing work of the indwelling Spirit is to produce the fruit of self-control in us. Now, we would be wrong to think that self-control is a less important or less impressive fruit, right? Since it's part of a list Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control is last. Right? Since it's the last in the list that begins with love, we know love is the apex, we'd be wrong to think it's not that important or it's less important because it's the last. That would be wrong, I think. Um, The the fruit of the Spirit comes in bunches. Okay? It's the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's not that self-control is one of the many fruits. It It is... It is all that the Holy Spirit wants to bring into our lives, one of many things that he wants to bring into our lives. And so what I want you to see today is that self-control is a sort of superpower that flies underneath the radar, and almost nobody believes is a superpower, but it actually is one. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at these two verses in reverse order, I read them in a different order than I'm going to cover them now. I want to look at Proverbs 25, 28 first, and then Proverbs 16, 32. And what I want you to see is that in these two verses, we have a warning, a very serious and sober warning, and a word of hope, a strong and glorious word of hope. So we have a warning and a word of hope. First, let's look at the warning. Proverbs 25, verse 28 says this, a man... Without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. What a picture. I mean, especially for those who would have read it in ancient times when it was very common for walls to be around cities. Now, when I read this and as I was thinking about this, I thought pretty quickly about Lord of the Rings, the two towers. And uh, the Rohirians, the, the, the kingdom of Rohan, they knew that war was upon them, and so King Theoden had to bring them to Helm's Deep, which was this mighty fortress that they had gone to many times before, and it had been a great protection for them. Once they got there, they thought they were safe, and they were relatively safe until the orcs breached the wall. Who, who, anyone seen the movie? Okay? The orcs breached the wall. All of a sudden, hundreds or thousands of orcs stormed this fortress and began ransacking and killing indiscriminately. A man who does not know how to rule his own emotions is like a defenseless city. That's the picture we have here, it's it's a clear warning. In ancient times, the walls of a city were very important to the city's protection. A wall was a sign of safety, a sign of security. And it wasn't until the walls of Jericho fell that the Israelites could take the city. It, wasn't, it, it was when Nehemiah heard that the, 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 the walls around Jerusalem had been burned by fire. It was when he heard that that he fell down and wept and mourned for days. A wall was a sign of refuge and the higher and thicker the wall, the better. The walls around the city of ancient Babylon were incredibly impressive, Enormous. Nebuchadnezzar II built three walls around the city, 40 feet tall. That's pretty tall, right? They were wide enough that chariots could race on top of them. That was an impressive protection for the ancient city of Babylon. At least from a human perspective, they were behind a wall of great protection. So self-control is like a wall of defense. Defense. I want you guys to hear that. Self-control is like a wall of defense. Without self-control, you are defenseless. With self-control, you keep the orcs out. Okay? And the higher and thicker the wall, the better. The stronger, the more consistent our rule of our emotions, the better. The more protected our souls are. Again, I think the imagery of this is so helpful and instructive Because it implies that a lack of self-control over our emotions leaves our souls defenseless and helpless to all manner of other attacks. I mean, anger is one thing, right? Sinful anger is a a sin, but it leaves us wide open to all kinds of other attacks, all kinds of other enemies to come storming in. I think Paul actually addresses this in Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27, here's what Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So be angry and do not sin. So there is a righteous anger, but then he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. If you do, what happens? You give an opportunity to the devil. Give no opportunity to the devil. The implication here is that when we hold on to anger, when it rules over us, rather than us ruling over it, we give space, we give room, we give opportunity, we give quarter to the devil. We are making room for him. The defensive walls have been breached and the soul has been has been broken into at that point. Now, I do not believe that a Christian, a true born-again Christian who has the Spirit of God indwelling them, I don't believe that person can be demon-possessed. In fact, I would, I would say no way they can be demon-possessed. The Lord Jesus Christ has laid claim on that person, right? Jesus said that he is the one who has bound the strong man and plundered his property. Who's the strong man? The devil. Who is his property? You and me. And Jesus bound him and plundered his property. He came and took us for himself. We are now the property of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is now the possessor of our souls. However, we can open ourselves up to all kinds of attacks. And the one way that we do is by not ruling over anger. Whether it's the explosive anger or the the under-the-surface anger, we open ourselves up to all kinds of attacks. And rest assured, once the protective wall around our souls is breached, the devil, who is the enemy of our souls, who is the father of lies, who is the deceiver of the nations, who is the tempter, will wreak havoc. He will. Thomas Watson, an old Puritan, wrote in his book called The Doctrine of Repentance. He said, listen to this. This is so good. He said, I mean, it's it's sobering, but it's very descriptive. He said, when lust or anger burn in the soul, Satan warms himself at the fire. When anger or lust burn in the soul, Satan comes near and warms himself at the fire. That's a fearful statement, but I think it goes along with what Paul said in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. When anger burns in the soul, when we don't rule over it, what? We're giving the devil a foothold. We're giving him opportunity. And so when we feel sinful anger burning in our soul, and I don't mean just a thought, I don't mean just a passing thought, but when we feel anger burning in our soul, we should also feel the presence of the devil coming near to warm himself at the fire of our anger. Well, just like the fruit of the Spirit comes in bunches, so does sin. So does sin. When we give way to sinful anger, there are a host of other things that come on that train along with it. The book of Proverbs helps us to understand what comes on the train with anger. How many know that anger often leads you and I to say and do really stupid things? <clears throat> right? It, it obviously does. I mean, we all probably could think of something not, not too far in the past. Certainly, we all have been around that child who, uh, you know, brother or sister takes something Mom or dad says, no, you don't do that. They really want to. They get worked up in a frenzy. And before you know it, this child who seemed to be in their right line five minutes ago is out of their blasted mind. They're saying things and doing things that make no sense at all, right? The, I always, I never start coming out in droves. A lot of foolishness follows anger. Proverbs 14, 17 says this, a man of quick temper acts foolishly, to which everyone who experience, experiences that either says amen or ouch, right? Later in Proverbs 14, verse 29, it says, whoever's slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly, lifts up folly. Look at folly. Look, at, look how foolish I am, Right? How many stupid things have we done or said in a moment of anger? Many, many, probably, over the years. If you're 44 like me or around my age, we've had many years to accumulate these experiences. Hopefully we're growing, and hopefully today there's resources that we may grow and experience victory, but we all know that we've done that before. How many lives do we know that have been destroyed? Marriages that have been destroyed? Families that have been ruined because of... The slow burn of anger that raged under the surface unchecked. Here's something else that comes on the train with anger. It's, and it's obvious. It's strife. It's brawling and fighting. It's so obvious. Proverbs 15 verse 18 says, The hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets So one stirs it up, the other one tries to put it out, right? And and that's sometimes I, I say to my kids, I know that your brother or sister did that to you, but here's what you can do. You can either try to put water on the fire or pour gasoline on it. And what you did, poured gasoline on it. Fighting and brawling come in the wake of anger. Often it's the outrageous type of strife yelling and screaming and tearing down and name-calling. For the passive-aggressive types, it's just going over that argument over and over in your mind, sometimes imagining brand-new arguments in your mind. You ever done that before? So we have this warning here. Anger doesn't party alone. It brings with it a host of other evil friends. And if we don't learn to rule over anger, our souls will be left in ruins. It's like the man who can't control his anger is like a city without walls has been broken into. So we have this warning that we must rule over our spirits. We must exercise self-control, which is a defensive wall around our souls against all sorts of attacks. But we also have a word of hope in Proverbs uh, 16.32. Proverbs 16.32 says this, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules over his spirit than he who takes a city. Isn't that amazing? I find that just stunning. Let me read it again. Whoever is slow to anger, he's better than the mighty. And he who rules over his spirit, he's better than the one who can take a city. The history books, of course, are filled with the stories of great and mighty men, right? Men who have conquered cities, men who have conquered empires, men who have subdued and subjected opposing forces. The history books are full of the accounts of these men, the power they amassed, the riches they amassed, the number of subjects they amassed, and so forth. Take, for instance, someone like Alexander the Great. He's someone that comes to mind, right? Alexander the Great, it says it in his name. He was a great man. He came to power in, as, as, as a very young man, I think 20 or something like that, very young. And he began conquering and conquered from Macedonia down through Asia Minor over to Egypt and all the way out to India before he died. In 10 years, I think, he conquered and conquered and conquered Proverbs 16.32 says the one who can rule over his spirit who is slow to anger is better than that. It's better than those who have conquered cities, those who have conquered kingdoms. Apparently, ruling and conquering over our spirit is more important and more difficult than taking a city. Think about that. The... And even, as, even for born-again Christians, we understand that there's still unruliness going on in here and learning with the Spirit's help to rule over our spirits is more difficult and a greater feat than taking a city. Subduing sinful passions in our hearts, exalting and cultivating godly attitudes and virtues and actions, this is greater than taking a city. We need to see the way God does. Self-control is a superpower. It is an offensive weapon. In Proverbs 25, 28, we saw that self-control is a defensive weapon, right? It's like a wall to guard our souls. Here, we see that the one who possesses self-control is a warrior who can take a city, Right, Because once he has first learned to rule over his own spirit, he can move out from there. And the key word is to rule. To rule over your spirit. The word rule means to take dominion, or to reign, or to govern. When we think of government, my guess is Most often we think of state or or federal government, maybe local government, but some kind of civil magistrate, right? Local, state. Uh, It's hard to not think about the federal government. It's getting so big and (laughs) um, nosy, right? Um, But government always begins with the individual, learning to govern or rule over him or herself. And then we move out from there. It's why you know, so it starts with the individual, and then it moves out to family government, and then it moves out to church government, and then it moves out to civil government. There are all these spheres of spheres of government, but it begins with the individual. The first line of government is self-government. The first line of government is self-rule. Perhaps one of the reasons why we've seen such an enormous increase in the size and reach of our federal government is because there's a large population, a growing population of people who either don't know how or don't want to rule over themselves. They don't want to govern themselves. John Adams, one of our founding fathers, the second president of the United States, famously said our constitution was made Only for a moral and religious people, it is wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely inadequate to the government of any other. Now, this is not a civics lesson, but it follows, government begins with the individual, governing him or her self, learning to rule over our passions. And what we're talking about today is ruling over anger. So we are to rule over our spirit, our inner man. It all begins there. What we need is an inner transformation. Inside, we live from the inside out. So, how do we grow in self control? We've seen that self control is a defensive weapon, it's also an offensive weapon. How do we grow in self control? How do we take dominion over our souls as it pertains to our anger? Notice I didn't ask how we manage our anger. The world has lots of ideas for that, right? Go outside on the deck and just let it out. Scream really loud to kind of let it out. Or take some swings at a punching bag or whatever. Go take some deep breaths. Now, taking some deep breaths might be a good thing. But what we need is we don't need to manage our anger. We need to rule and govern and take dominion over it. We need to change from the inside out. The Holy Spirit produces self-control in us, which is a fruit, which indicates that it grows progressively, sometimes even slowly over time. But what must we do to work with the Spirit to grow in self-control? That's, that's where I want to land today. Um, more could be said, but I want to leave you with three things. To grow in self-control, to rule our spirits, to be slow to anger and grow in this, we need to do three things. I'm going to mention them and then we're going to cover each one of them. First, we need to remember God's anger. Second, we need to confess ours. And third, we need to imitate our Father. So first, we need to remember God's anger. There is an anger that is righteous always righteous, and it's God's. In an obvious way, the anger of God is the most fierce and frightening thing we could ever imagine. Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon, or preached a sermon, that God used powerfully. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And yet, so this is a fearful thing, a fierce thing, and yet for those who are in Christ, God's righteous anger is the answer for our sinful anger. Now you might think, I don't get it. Let me explain, okay? I mentioned earlier that our sinful anger is first sinful against God, right? It's first sinful against God, not merely against another person or a group of people. It certainly is that as well, but it's first and foremost sin against God. Our anger is an affront to God and if not dealt with, it will sink us to the lowest hell. It will. Colossians 3 says that it is on account of anger and wrath, human anger and wrath and malice and slander that the wrath of God is coming. But God in his mercy and justice, poured out his righteous anger on Christ instead of you and I if we trust in Christ. God poured out his righteous anger upon Christ on the cross to punish our sin and put our sin to death. That's what happened in the death of Christ. He bore our sins. He bore our guilt. He bore the anger of God that we deserve. And he did it in our place, on our behalf, and he took all those things away. Through faith in Christ, our sin is canceled. Our guilt has been expunged. And the wrath of God that we deserve has been absorbed by Christ. And therefore, there's none left for us. And so, what do forgiven, justified, loved children of God do? They forgive, they love, they cancel other people's debts. In the song, "O oh, 4,000 Tongues to Sing, there's a line that is so rich in theological truth, it says this, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoners free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Canceled sin is sin that has had its power broken as well. You understand that? Canceled sin is a sin that has had its power broken. Which sins have been canceled for you through Jesus Christ? Which ones? All of them. Every single one of them. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He breaks the power of the the sin of wicked anger. He breaks its power. And that's not just a song, it's unequivocally, it's true. It is gloriously true. For those who believe in Christ, every one of our sins have been canceled. And once the shackles of canceled sin are broken, the prisoner can go free and is no longer a prisoner. So if you're in Christ, he has canceled the sin of anger and wrath. He's canceled it. He's broken the chains that have held you bound. And you can walk now as a free man or woman. Amen? Amen. So remember God's anger that was poured out on Christ instead of you to cancel your sins. Second... So first, we remember God's anger. Second, confess yours. What do we do with the anger? We still battle. When we find ourselves angry, what do we do? When we've blown up in anger or we have been secretly carrying the embers of anger close to our heart, what do we do? And I wonder if there's some here who have been holding on to stuff for years. What do we do? As Christians, we confess it. We confess it. We don't justify it. We don't blame shift, right? Justify is like, hey, if you really knew how bad that hurt me, then you would understand why I'm so mad and why I can't let that go. Blame shifting is like, yeah, but they, you know, pointing the finger somewhere else. No, that's not what Christians do. We confess our sins. It's so important. One of the reasons why some can't get victory over anger is because they never confess it to God. They always justify it. They always blame shift. They've gotten into habit. And in fact, they they might even think, God, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, but they did this. They think that's confession. It's not confession. To confess our sins means to say the same thing God says about something. What does God say about our anger? What does he say about wrath and malice and anger and slander? He says it's wicked. So we say the same thing God says, right? We confess our sins. The old timers used to call this, if you're an old timer, I don't mean to, uh, hopefully you don't find that offensive, but the old timers used to call this keeping short accounts with God, confessing our sin often. I mean, the best is when, right when you notice, right? Right when you notice. I've, oh, oh my goodness, I've blown it. God, that was dumb, that was wicked, that was sinful. Please forgive me, right? But, so do it immediately, do it at the end of the day. Regular confession of sin. This is what it means to walk in the light with God. Listen to 1 John 1, verses 6 to 10. If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, continually cleanses us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, there it is, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's it. That's it. If we say we have no, if we say that we're if we, if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in the darkness of anger, we lie. We're not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light, his blood cleanses us from all sin. And what does that mean? It means confessing our sin. Confessing our sin to God. He cleanses us. He forgives us through and through. I like the picture of like getting a, a nice, clean shower in our souls, for our souls. He cleanses us. Now you might be thinking, wait a second, you said all of our sins are forgiven through Christ on the cross. And I did say that. And, and, and in a legal or forensic matter, our sins are forgiven. They will never, ever be brought up in judgment against us again. Christ took them away. But here, we're talking about fellowship with God, our Father, and fellowship with one another. And you know this. In human relationships, sin unacknowledged, never accounted for, never confessed, never never just, we never come clean, never just say, you know, I really blew it, hon, I'm sorry. When we don't do that, it does negatively affect and damage the closeness of fellowship. It absolutely does. Well, it does with God as well. If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in the darkness of anger, we lie. We don't have fellowship with God. So, confess your anger to God. Let him cleanse your soul of it. So, remember God's anger. Confess yours. Third and final. Imitate your father. Imitate your father. Remember when God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34. This is really one of the epic events in all of Scripture. It's one of the high watermarks of divine revelation. Exodus 34 just is. Um, I mean, the incarnation, the death and resurrection of Christ, obviously. This is up there. Moses had asked God, didn't ask him. He said, Lord, show me your glory. And God said, you can't see my face because you'll die but I'll put you in a rock, put you in a cleft of a rock, and I will pass before you. You can see my backside. What God does is he proclaims his name. And what God proclaims of himself gets to the very core of who he is and how he behaves toward his beloved covenant people. Here's what we see in Exodus 34.6. The Lord passed before Moses and he proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. You know what's next? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. A God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Of course, this is covenant language. Steadfast love, loyal love. Steadfast, never-ending love. This is, this, is how God, this is how God operates toward his people. This is how he behaves toward his beloved covenant, blood-bought people. Now, we get a clue as to how important this revelation is by how often we see this phrase in the Bible. You see it all over the place in the Old Testament. Exodus 34 is the first place, but from there, you see it over and over and over and over again, and they're all thinking back to that time God revealed himself to Moses as the Lord who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's interesting, we're going through Jonah in a youth group on Wednesday night, and uh, if you're familiar with the story of Jonah, he's the reluctant prophet who did not want to go to Nineveh and preach uh, to the Ninevites. He went the other way. God got him there, right? He, he brought a storm upon the sea, fish swallowed him, spit him out. He went to Nineveh. He preached, and this wicked city repented, and God showed them mercy. In Jonah chapter 4, it's so fascinating. We see Jonah grumbling and angry. Do you know what he says to God? He said, I knew you are going to do this. That's why I ran away. I knew, listen, he said, I knew that you were a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. For all who are in Christ, this is how God wants you to know him. He is our Father who is slow to anger who abounds, abounds. He's rich and overflowing in steadfast love. Now, some, I think, have the exact opposite view of God. They think of God's anger as like a pent-up dam, ready to explode at any moment. And they think of his love as something that needs to build slowly over time and then maybe... He'll reveal his love to us. That's not the way that God is. He is slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love. His love is spring-loaded. He abounds in his loyal covenant love. And he is slow to anger toward his children. I want to exhibit that toward my children. I want them to know that I am... I want them to feel that I'm slow to anger. I'm not ready to just... Sadly, they've seen that from me before. Do you know God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? I mean, do you know the God who reveals himself in this way? Do you know him as your father? Do you know that his mercy and love and patience that he has lavished upon you even to this day, you do not deserve? You didn't the first day you believed in Christ. You don't today. You won't 10 years from now. You won't on your dying, on your deathbed, and you won't a 1,000 years into eternity. You will never deserve it. It is unmerited. It is gracious. He gives it. David repeats this in Psalm 103, the same phrase. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Listen, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He does not deal with us according to to what we deserve. Praise his name. He's a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So I ask you again, do you know this God? I don't mean do you know about him. I don't mean did you grow up going to church or do you go to church often. I'm setting to everyone here, do you know this God? If you don't or if you're not sure, his invitation is open to come to him through Jesus Christ. And if you'd say, I do know him, amen, then imitate him. Imitate him. Paul says in Ephesians 5:1, imitate God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. How do we imitate God? We can only imitate him as beloved children. Children who are dearly loved by a Father in heaven. As beloved children of God, imitate him, which means be slow to anger because that's how he is towards you and abound in love because that's how God treats you. Amen. Let's pray.